Hello and welcome to a special episode of Cut to the Race podcast. Today we are going to cover the biggest conspiracy theories in F1. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. It's lights out and away we go! On the panel with me today to discuss these theories, we have got Matt Womack. How are you, sir? I am doing great. I'm so happy to be back in my happy place on this podcast. Good stuff. I mean, it's only been a week, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. Um, <laughs> Will is with us as well. How are you, Will? Hello, everybody. Yes, I'm very excited. Uh, been doing a lot of research for this episode, so uh, looking forward to a bit of a cracker. And we also have Callum. How are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm ready for this, partly. How's your research, Cal? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that there. They say 80% preparation, 20% work. I'm going to reverse that today and show you it's all bollocks. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> One thing I will say is the Formula Nerds has only become the Formula Nerds because we have... Um, Blagged it most of the way and done fairly well at it. So yeah. we, we did actually do some work today. So this may be good. It may not. But um, this is going to be our rundown of the top conspiracies in F1 that were selected by you, the listeners. So you picked these. We did the research and off we go. Now, without any further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Will for the first conspiracy of the show. <laughs> So the year is 1994. The Channel Tunnel has finally been opened by the Queen nonetheless. The German supermarket giant Lidl opened their first 10 stores in the UK and Pulp Fiction was released to cinemas. All the while, the cigarette-backed money and status-fueled sport of F1 was giving fans another exciting season. By just the third race, a little-known driver named Michael Schumacher was leading the championship ahead of Rubens Barrichello at uh, Jordan. Many thought this was going to be, and they would have been, well, founded in this assumption, one of the best championships in the sport's history. The legend Ayrton Senna had joined the Williams team alongside the prestigious powerhouse Damon Hill, who was in third place in the championship, so it was all hotting up. The scene was set for another exciting, jam-packed racing weekend uh, at Imola. It was the San Marino Grand Prix. However, in Friday's qualifying, everything started to unravel. Barrichello crashed at around 140 miles an hour and was knocked unconscious after his car launched into the air and then hit the top of a tyre barrier. However, the young Brazilian only suffered a sprained wrist and a broken nose. Such luck would prove to be in very short supply for others that weekend. The next day saw another tense qualifying session starting to draw to a close, when suddenly, 20 minutes before it was due to end, Austrian driver Roland Ratzenberger from the Simtech team hit a concrete rule at around 195 miles an hour. He was airlifted to hospital, but he sadly died from injuries sustained during the impact. While this weekend was infamous, for another reason I shall reveal shortly, it would be the mark of an idiot, frankly, not to remember Ratzenberger, a driver who was liked by many of his rivals and potentially had a lot more to offer the world. Indeed, his death left a very profound effect. 
Ayrton Senna was in tears while Professor Sid Watkins tried to console him, famously saying to Senna, What else do you need to do? You've been world champion three times. You are obviously the quickest driver. Give it up and let's go fishing. Unfortunately, these words were to no avail, and the next day Senna insisted on continuing to race. He had qualified on pole in front of Schumacher and Berger. The race quickly stopped as fast as it had begun, however. JJ Leto of Benetton stalled on the start, and Pedro Lamy in his Lotus rammed into the back of him. Neither driver was seriously hurt, thankfully, and so once the cars were cleared out of the way, the race could be restarted on lap 5. Only two laps later, however, at the Tamburello turn, Senna, who was leading Schumacher, failed to make the tight turn and sped into the unprotected concrete barrier at 131 miles per hour. The BBC cut the live camera feed as medical teams rushed to the scene, but to no avail. Ayrton Senna had died, and the world had lost one of the most generous, kind-spirited and exceptionally talented sportsmen of all time. After the race, the Italian prosecutors filed legal charges against several people in connection with Senna's death, including Frank Williams, the founder and manager of the Williams team, Patrick Head, the engineering chief, and their designer at the time, Adrian Newey, a man responsible for some of the best F1 car designs of all time. Senna had officially died of head injuries caused by the impact with a wheel and suspension, but things weren't as simple as that. The point of contention was over the steering column, which had been cut and welded back together before the race. There was also a portion of data missing from the black box on board the car which recorded all data, and 1.6 seconds of onboard footage was also missing due to the fact that the broadcaster had switched away to look at a different car's angle moments before the crash. As such, they hadn't recorded it. Thankfully, technology has come a long way since then. However, the parties involved were cleared of initial manslaughter charges as the welding modifications were made at Senna's request so as to allow him more room in the cockpit. This seemed to be the end of the matter, but an appeal was lodged in 1999 against Newey and Head. But the missing data from the black box meant that there was no real new evidence that had come to light and the jury decided that the case was non-existent under Article 530 in Italian law. However, in 2003, that decision was annulled as the court believed that Article 530 had actually been misinterpreted and a retrial was subsequently ordered. In 2005, Newey was acquitted of all charges, but the case against Patrick Head was judged to be beyond the statute of limitations. Finally, then, this saga was brought to a close in 2007 when the final verdict stated the following. It has been determined that the accident was caused by a steering column failure. This failure was caused by badly designed and badly executed modifications. The responsibility of this falls on Patrick Head, culpable of omitted control. Even though Head had eventually been found responsible for Senna's accident, he wasn't arrested. The verdict was delivered past the Italian statute of limitation for manslaughter. So, that brings to an end the facts of that turbulent weekend and the post-race trials. Or does it? One question which has many fans puzzled is how Williams managed to lose track of that crucial bit of data from the black box. These are devices that are specifically designed to suffer massive impact and still record relevant speeds. Also, there's that missing TV footage. 
Did it show any more detail or give us a clue as to the specific nature of the impact? And finally, the car itself. Modifications that were made so badly. Can it be true from a team who took such pride in having a well-made and world-beating heritage? It's possible that they may have cut corners, but can it really be the case? They were known to be meticulous in their detail and were not ones to leave out the small and vital bits of engineering that might save a driver's life. Personally, I don't think that there is anything too sinister going on here. Senna was loved by all. Indeed, his funeral had around half a million people come out onto the streets of Brazil to pay their respects. That is an unimaginable amount of love, respect and emotion that must have been poured out across the world. And let's not forget Ratzenberger. Max Mosley, the uh, head of the FIA at the time, was famously quoted as saying that he felt he should go to Ratzenberger's funeral and not Senna's because, well, he knew that everybody was going to go to Senna's and he kind of felt bad for Ratzenberger. And ultimately, it was just a terrible, terrible weekend for the sport. Murray Walker, the BBC's famous commentator and uh, a hero of the sport, said it was one of the blackest days in F in Formula One history of, you know, ever. And, and that's quite a statement. We'd lost drivers like Jim Clark before in terrible accidents and Nicky Lauda had almost died. For him to say that and for the feelings to be mutually accepted across the paddock, it really speaks volumes. <sighs> However, I can't say that I have the final verdict on this and I don't think that anybody really will but I open it up to debate and I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say I mean well um, what a what, what, what a what a subject to start us off with will I think this is um, this is one where there's there's always going to be theories about what happened the one I'm really shocked with if I'm honest is that um, uh, the, 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 the blame was apportioned at putting the Williams car back together. Now, Matt, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this as well, because I, I, I know you have them. I'm actually going to be a very unpopular opinion on this with most listeners uh, in that I don't believe Williams did anything incorrectly or unsavory with this. Uh, there have been so many investigations, documentaries, everything brought to light over Ayrton Senna's demise in the past. And one of the big points of contention was actually that steering column that Will was discussing uh, in the onboard footage there was a yellow, I don't remember if it was an indicator light or a bulb or something on the steering column, but one of the main focuses in the investigation was how much flex uh, in all directions was there, and they used that as a reference point going over the cockpit footage. They even went so far as to go to another uh, chassis number that had the same setup as that, redid the modification, and verified that there is going to be an acceptable level of flex in that steering column. You know, we all think of, in the modern sense of F1 cars, it's a plug-in yoke, and there is not an actual column that's going to be affixed there because the steering wheels are removable now. They were then, Matt. But the column is, is a different geometry instead of being a single piece of steel going down the car. Uh, and they found there was no problem with that. Uh, also, we have to put things, as we sit here in 2021, into the mind frame of this is 1994. There were still trying to understand how to go over data how to store data, how to interpret data. There were flocks of engineers hired just to go over telemetry because they didn't know how to push out some of the non-pertinent data. Every single data point they thought told a story. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. And it was just so many parameters being looked at, it's impossible in that data age 
to completely encapsulate everything. Plus the amount of G-forces involved in that crash with the black box, it's, in my assumption, surmisable that certain components reporting uh, data parameters would be lost. I think it was primarily a due diligence thing because we did lose one of the greatest drivers to ever climb an F1 cockpit. And he and all drivers deserve that level of attention to detail and due diligence. However, in the frame of everything, I don't think you can lay the blame anybody's feet. And I do not really subscribe to the belief that there was some political maneuverings or nefarious intentions with the missing telemetry from Meredith Senna's crash. I think it, it, it's worth noting that Senna wasn't officially dead when they removed the black boxes. Um, and the black boxes are also located just behind the cockpit. So this is um, an area where, you can argue with me if you want, but this wasn't this didn't have the most damage just behind the cockpit. It's, uh, this is what's sorry. This is what was interesting to me in, when I was researching this was that he wasn't pronounced dead until I think two or three hours after the crash. Um, eventually, the Italians said that actually he 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 died instantly, and they 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 you know they they placed the time of death I think at around two seventeen in the afternoon I believe. Um, so yeah, it it is it it is interesting. I'm and again the whole circumstance that surrounded the trials afterwards. I mean, for me, I'm frankly baffled that they thought it was uh, a manslaughter issue at all, actually, because if you take into context history and you look at all the other cars on the grid at that time, I mean, even that day, one of the reasons, arguably, that Barrichello had such a nasty accident uh, was that I th he lost part of his front wing um, uh, during a... I, th I think he failed to hit... Uh, he failed to make a turn and uh, scraped it off on a curb or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly. Um and so the idea that cars, you know, that, that cars wouldn't have issues, wouldn't fail and were built of some superhuman level of machine engineering, it's just frankly not true. I mean, the 90s were a different time. Things were of a less, you know, less high quality um, and stuff went wrong more readily. You know, it was sponsored by cigarette manufacturers. I mean, that should tell you a good chunk of what you need to know about the sport at that time, which was it wasn't really focused on health and or safety. Um, in fact, after Ratzenberger's death, uh, Senna and a, a number of other drivers, I believe, including Schumacher, decided to form the Grand Prix Drivers Association, um, uh, basically a, a, a body that was going to look after driver safety. And they've done good work up until now, just sadly, they, uh, they couldn't do enough for Senna before the next day. So I think it's also worth noting that as he wasn't pronounced dead when the black boxes were removed... Um, that's not breaking any laws because um, it wasn't a police investigation at the time. If anything, it was potentially breaking FIA regulations. I'm not sure on that, but that's the only potential. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, any any criminal um, sort of, uh, getting in the way. Um, but the team took the black boxes so that they could check the data and see if Damon should be withdrawn from the restart. And that was the reason that they said. Now, so Williams then have the black boxes in their possession. And it is then obviously deemed unreadable or, or the data is unretrievable. Um, I think that's where it gets a little bit strange. Uh, it's the, these black boxes, they're not like you get in an aeroplane, from my understanding. They're, they're sim simply uh, telemetry. Uh, they store the telemetry in there. And for it to be destroyed is 
very unlikely. And the fact that it went straight into Williamson's hands, not the government's hands, not the not not, not the investigators' hands, is the bit where where I see that being a bit strange. Matt, what do you think? But also in the same context, we have to recognize that, you know, electronics and quote-unquote driver aids, telemetry, all that was a pretty novel thing at that time. Uh, the, in the late 80s, 1988 with Lotus was the first time we started seeing uh, you know, electronic components come in and the way the parameter identification data or PIDs work with F1 and all cars, I should say, is, you know, the sensors relay to a module of some sort that has a limited amount of storage available to record the data. You could have different baud rates at, you know, as long as nothing happens, it erases the memory here and there and such like that. But also, uh, it's not even so much the physical damage to the black box. It could be the G-forces submitted to it. It could have been a communications issue. There are so many things that could lead to that disappearing. So even with, you know, they're not going to immediately launch into the criminal investigation they're on track, it could have been a corrupted data file. And there's really, at that time, I don't think there's any way they could ascertain why and or how the data files were lost. Uh, you know, there are electronic pathologists, I don't know the proper word for it, that can now go into and look at codings and things like that and find how thing, codes manipulated, storage files are uh, edited and such. That's not really a thing at the time. Keep in mind, we're still talking about early 90s computer <laughs> programming and we're looking at it through the 21st century lens. It's just, I think it's just what had to be done. It was commented on extensively by every time and it was the world champion it's the greatest driver of all time but with the way things were handled on track the pronunciation of him not being dead there it shouldn't go into a criminal uh you know the team still has a job to do they have a race to win that weekend the next weekend they're going to want to see if there's anything they can do to make it better and more competitive and safer there they're not really worried about who to assign blame to yet mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think the only thing that we've missed out is that it's uh, in Italy, you are not allowed to pronounce someone dead at a racetrack, um, which is why they didn't. Um, and the only other thing I would say, Matt, I'm sort of agreeing with you here, is that um, we're talking 90s technology. This is a solid state hard drive prone to failure. You know, they weren't they weren't good in those days. So do, do we want to give our give our opinions, give our out of 10 ratings on how likely we think that there was a conspiracy behind this. I would say my my overall rating after the research is a a one point five out of ten. I find it very unlikely uh, that this would have been anything other than a legitimate investigation and uh, and uh, and trial, etc. Okay, Matt, what what would you rate it? I would rate the overall conspiracy a three out of ten uh, in that. Nothing ever happens for no cause. Uh, not to say that I'm assigning blame to any of the mechanics, engineers, anything of that nature, but this was a cacophony of circumstances that could have lent itself to this outcome. So while there may be a culpable party or somebody to lay the blame on, we'll never know. And I just feel it. it is what it is, as devastating and as dark at times it is. I don't believe there's any overarching conspiracy with it. So three. Okay. And Cal, you haven't said much on the topic, but having listened to, to the thoughts uh, and the conversation, what would you rate this conspiracy? Yeah, I think you all covered that pretty much anyway. I didn't have anything to add to that. Um, I'm going to say a zero out of 10. There's, there's no way in my mind, I can't conceive that there would ever be any sort of 
hiding of anything or tampering with anything to cause a man to die in a racing car. I just can't conceive that in my brain. So it's a zero out of ten for me. I just it's not ever going to happen. I'm going to give it a um, the overall conspiracy a four, and the reason for that is because the Williams team uh, obtained the black boxes first and then the data was not able to be retrieved. I'm not saying that um, it was, you know, anyone caused that death. I'm saying that there was very likely could have been information hidden. Um, and uh, that may have been to protect themselves. It may have been, for, it may have never been there. We, we don't know that, but there's no way that we will ever know that. And that's why I'm going to give it a four out of 10. So you're really rating the possibility of the conspiracy a four out of 10 with the way it was handled. Yeah. Fair enough to be, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that we, you know, the rest of us don't think that's likely, but I, I mean, he was one of the greatest drivers. The f- the embarrassment of potential scandal, you know, it. I mean, it. I find it very unlikely, but the possibility is still there. I guess, yeah. Amazing, Will. Thank you for your um, your research no and, and, and everything on that. We're going to take a short break, and on the other side, Matt's going to give us conspiracy number two. No pressure. <laughs> Welcome back to the Cut to the Race podcast conspiracy special. Next up, I'm going to hand it over to Matt for our second conspiracy of the show. Ferrari, 2007. Ever since the prancing horse was first adapted from the visages of World War I aircraft and placed on old man Enzo's racing machines, Italians, and indeed the world, treated the brand with a sort of reverent awe. If you got caught speeding in Italy, you could simply rev your engine for the local municipality and let them take a few photos or let the friends come and see and away you would go in a cloud of tire spin accompanied by the echo of thunderous power beneath the hood. In the late 90s and into the mid-2000s, Ferrari had an as-of-yet unheard run of good luck. As the 90s wrapped up, Ferrari began assembling what they called a quote-unquote super team at Marinello. They brought in Jean Todd as general manager. Uh, He had already proven his efficiency by winning back-to-back manufacturer's titles with Peugeot in 1985 and 1986 in Group B rallying. He led a team to victory for four years in a row at the Paris-Dakar rally. He even uh, had Jackie X driving for him in 1989. There's a little trivia tidbit for you. He also won Le Mans in 1992 and 1993. So 1994, he was tapped by Ferrari for the general manager position. They also brought in Ross Braun as technical director, Rory Byrne as chief designer, Marco Fianello, head of vehicle dynamics, you know, da, 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 Stefano Domenicali, who is now the CEO of F1. After another championship year in 2004 for Michael Schumacher, clinched in Belgium, fans were shocked to see a dramatic drop in performance from the Scuderia the next year. Much like the current Mercedes dominance, the FIA began to try to find ways to spice up the game and make it more interesting and difficult for the teams. Tire changes were done away with. Uh, A single set of tires had to make it through qualifying and the race in 2005. Do you guys remember the U.S. Grand Prix of that year and what an absolute shit show that was? Uh, You can thank the regulation changes in Michelin for that one. 2005 also being the last year of the V10s and the aerodynamic redesigns that brought as well, with higher noses and smaller diffusers and such, Ferrari and Bridgestone couldn't get the recipe quite right. 2006, Ferrari and Schumacher bumbled away a chance for a driver and constructors championship. Uh, That was also the year he locked up his brakes at Ricasse, which led to that, and he got demoted in engine failures with the new 2.4 liters plagued Ferrari all year. Michael quote-unquote retired, albeit not permanently, at the end of that season which brings us to 2007. Another key member of the Dream Team was Nigel Stepney. 
His career dated all the way back to 1977 as a mechanic with the Shadows team. Stepney came from Benetton, where he was the chief mechanic, with Michael Schumacher. They named him the chief mechanic, and he was later promoted to race and test technical manager. This man has been trackside and in the pits every weekend since the late 70s. Well, before the 2007 season started, he started becoming very vocal about his displeasure about the restructuring happening in Ferrari after Ross Braun left. He even threatened to take a year away from F1 because he thought he could not progress his career in F1 under the umbrella of Ferrari as it stood. Partially, as a punitive effort, he was made head of performance development in late February before racing began in March. This meant he was no longer trackside or in the paddock and was relegated to the factory. For a man who has been there amongst the buzz for 30 years, this had to sting, and it may have made him bitter. Fast forward to June of that year. Ferrari launches an investigation into Stepney alleging impropriety with documentation kept there in-house in Marinello. Less than a month later, Stepney is no longer with Ferrari. The same day Stepney was dismissed and fired, Ferrari leveled accusations at a McLaren engineer who was later revealed to be Mike Coughlin. These two had known each other for a very long time. The paddock is a very, very close, tight-knit community. There is no way that teams, engineers, and drivers are not all conversing back and forth. Uh, so they have developed a personal and professional relationship. The accusations were that Stepney had given Mike Coughlin classified Ferrari data. How the transfer of documents came to be exchanged is not widely known. But my best guess is someone at, at McLaren may have stoked the fires of, of Salty Stepney and somehow planted the seed in his mind to talk to his friend about it and potentially defect to McLaren. The end result is Stepney turned over 780 pages of technical data to Mike Coughlin. But what do you do when you get the details about a competitor's car, such as critical dimensions of key components? In Mike Coughlin's case... You send your wife with these documents down to the local coffee shop to duplicate them. However, the clerk at the coffee shop was a Tifosi. Recognizing what he was copying, he contacted the Ferrari team at Marinello and informed them what was happening. A warrant was then served in July, and the documents were discovered at Coughlin's home. McLaren denied any knowledge of the documents whatsoever and even invited FIA officials to examine their technical drawings to show, see, we didn't use any of it. The case was basically postponed at this point. Ferrari were pissed. They called the decision, quote-unquote, incomprehensible. McLaren obviously accepted the outcome of this first case because there were no fines or fees imposed. Then, Ron Dennis, the McLaren team principal, wrote a letter. In August, to the president of the Italian Motorsport Authority, Luigi Macaluso, claiming that Ferrari had been dishonest in their tailing of events and alleged that their car for the season opener in Australia was illegal. Guess who told him that? Nigel friggin' Stepney. So we have Nigel Stepney stealing documents for Ferrari. Clearly, he's unhinged and bitter. Then he runs, hands the documents over to Coughlin and says, we also use an illegal floor in Australia. Do with that what you will. However... Now that Mike Coughlin has the documents to corroborate his quote-unquote whistleblowing of Stepney and the illegal floor, how can they prove that it's illegal without admitting they have the documents? McLaren's managing director, Jonathan Neal, basically instructed Mike Coughlin to stay as far away from him as he could because they don't want to implicate Mike Coughlin with the whistleblowing, as at that time, they were two separate incidents. In the midst of all of this, Renault get drug into this investigation. 
While all this high drama is going on, Alonzo and Hamilton are butting heads and being very tricky with one another on the track, as I'm sure Ollie will explain later. It boiled to a head at the Hungarian Grand Prix when Hamilton didn't let Alonzo by during the fuel-burning laps. As a result, Fernando basically abandoned Lewis Hamilton in the pits during qualifying and didn't give him the chance to set a last lap time. Ron Dennis lost his mind in a fit of rage and basically had a row with Fernando Alonso before the race. Somehow in this conversation, it is revealed that Fernando Alonso has been talking to Mike Coughlin along with Pedro De La Rosa. He threatens Ron Dennis, saying that he has emails containing some new evidence that he can shape things up if things don't go his way. Ron Dennis informs the FIA of this and assures the powers that be that there is nothing in the emails that shows McLaren did anything wrong. However, September rolls all around. Bernie Eccleston reaches out to Alonzo, Hamilton, De La Rosa, basically stating, we are aware of the emails. If you come talk to us about it, nothing will happen to you. However, if we learn later that you had information that didn't tell us, we can impose fines, we can deduct points, we can basically make life difficult for you. And on September 5th, the case is reopened. Less than a week after this, McLaren challenges the legality of Renault's action. Basically, Ron Dennis and McLaren are now forced into a corner. They're in damage control mode. And they decided that if we're going to go down for espionage activities, we're going to take other teams with us, saying that if we're in the wrong, so is everybody else. On that note, in November, it was found out that Renault had documents much like the Ferrari ones about the McLaren car. They had layouts, designs of key components like the fueling systems, the gears assemblies, the oil cooling systems, the hydraulic and suspension dampeners. In the end, the documents, the emails, Ferrari's challenging of the legality and the actions of McLaren finally caught up to McLaren. McLaren were stripped of all their points and disqualified from being able to win the Constructors' Championship that year. They were also fined a still-standing record 100 million pounds. However, Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso were not docked any points, but Lewis lost the championship by one point. Perhaps some of the off-track shenanigans carried over. Their infighting there could have caused one of them or both of them to not win the drivers. Perhaps in the end it was karma. Whatever you believe, this entire debacle became known as Spygate. My conspiracy on this is not the fact that documents were discovered amongst the teams. The biggest conspiracy for me is how, if Fernando Alonso is aware of the documents, was not fined or had any points deducted, but if McLaren is so harshly dealt with, how did Renault escape virtually unscathed by committing the same acts as McLaren? Oh, I mean, this, this is the big one, isn't it? Blimey. Blimey. Um, oh, take a breath. Spice. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I was doing my background on this, you know, we're talking criminal investigations here. We're talking search warrants of people's houses, you know, and, and they found stuff. This, this, was, this is the conspiracy of F1, but it, it was... It, re- yeah. it was... It happened, right? I, I think we all agree on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get you know uh, <clears throat> sued, but uh, uh, I think it. I think it was a thing. If you look at Wikipedia, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. I th- 
I will be the one that takes the fall on this. I know it happened in all the teams because Fernando Alonso is aware of it, talking to Ron Dennis about it. And you're going, look at Racing Point. They somehow, quote unquote, recreated the pink Mercedes without any drawings, without any direct technical information. It, it, it has to be a common occurrence. With all the 3D mapping and everything, this happened. Unequivocally. But how do you justify it? It's it's incredible that um, I'm sort of setting myself up here, but it's it's incredible that McLaren were allowed to race in um, the following year. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. the, the question here of did McLaren do wrong is it's very difficult because if you've seen the technical details of a performing car, <clears throat> there's no way you're not going to end up using that even subconsciously. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That, Even if there's no direct component on the car, yeah, you have to at least redesign or evaluate. And you've got and to read what, it, right? You're not going to just yeah, put, it to, say, <laughs> put it to the hey, side. We are giving you some of our biggest plans. Please don't look at them. We want you to uh, have for, for safekeeping. All right, mate. Yeah, sure, no worries. <laughs> right, this is ridiculous. I mean, personally, I think, like, I, I, I find it odd as well that Ron Dennis was allowed to stay on as, uh, as, as as team principal at that point. I mean, for me, seeing documentaries about him and reading, I think he's a, he seems like a pretty nasty piece of work. He found some good drivers and uh, used that as his career advantage, quite rightly so, and fair play to the man. Um, but if you look at the way that he handled the Spygate saga, um, and, uh, I mean, that sending that letter... Sending that letter off to the head of the Italian motorsport body or whatever it was that you said. I don't know. You got it right. I feel like that's pretty unprofessional. I would have... I don't know. I just It seems like a tactical blunder. Yeah, yeah, the coffee shop incident. Matt, can you just scroll back and just explain that to me one more was time? Was it a coffee shop or was it a, a copy? Uh, like copy. A, a, Oh, oh, sorry. Like a Kinko's, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, a sta- like a Staples for those. <laughs> right, I was yeah. going to say, well, the guy in the coffee shop. Uh... Basically what it is, is Mike Coughlin didn't want to be caught as a McLaren engineer handling classified Ferrari documents. So he sent his wife to get copies of it. And yes. the poor guy working the counter is probably just flipping through and either sees like the outline of the car or the pricing horse imagine? logos on there. And he's like, ah, uh, hmm. So so he just gave, you know, they just called their, their pallet Ferrari, who they just happened to have the phone number for and let them know, did they? I, I don't know how he did it. In my, like, envisioning in my head, I like to think he clicked, like, the contact us button on Ferrari's yeah. website. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it came to be. I have no idea what channels he went through. But... You have information about the massive conspiracy. It is a Twitter handle. You can uh, tweet us out there. Were McLaren set up? I mean, this I'm, I'm asking a different question. Oh, now. surely not. Oh, come on. Go on, Cal. You, you, you've been so quiet on this episode. We, the listeners have forgotten you're here. Yeah, I'm sorry. Matt, you mentioned that Alonso knew about these yes. documents yet, and Renault or Alonso didn't get into any trouble. Yes. Here's my part on that. Do you mm-hmm. think that Alonso and Renault didn't get in trouble because they were at the forefront of Formula One at that time, being 2005, 2006 champions. I think so. And I think that was Bernie's intent with the whole, if you tell us, you won't get in trouble. But if we found out later, mister, I think that was the, almost setting a precedent to protect those two. Because McLaren at the time could 
you know, not stomach the hundred million pine found fine pound, not <laughs> dyslexia. Good wording there. Yeah, yes. right. Kind of like a chuddle. But uh, McLaren could recover from that with the PR going to come from it and the fact that they could have potentially still won the driver's championship. You're not going to bend off what turns out to be two world champions later on down the road for something they weren't directly involved with. They may have had knowledge of it, but they weren't implicit in it. So you think that Bernie Eccleston has given Renault and Alonso a bit of a buy because they're, they were the, the money makers at Formula One at that moment in time. They were the, the forefront. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we always hear in all of my research, uh, I found 780 pages of documentation. It doesn't say what, but consider Stepney's role at the time. Lord knows what could have been in those documents. However, in the Renault documents that they had of the McLaren car, it lists specific components and systems that could be prioritized for research and development. Yet nothing happens to Renault. It just, this whole thing with hmm. the timing of it and how it coalesces into one shitstorm hmm. stinks. I, 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 I think. I've, I've, I've just double checked something that. 2006, so the year before, Schumacher retired and Alonso left mm -hmm. Renault. Mm -hmm. That seems, you know, they've just fallen apart as a team, right? Mm -hmm. it, and the thing is, the thing for me that sticks out the most is the first ruling, Ron Dennis is adamant. Uh, McLaren didn't do anything. We don't know. This was a rogue individual. Come look at our car. You can't see anything. And then in the second round of investigation, if you will, once Fernando's like, listen, dude, if I'm going down, I'm taking everybody with me. Ron Dennis starts screaming about how you can't do that and basically defending the documents that he know exists. However, we all know you can't turn around a key component redesign in one year in F1. So just because that car didn't have any proprietary information on it doesn't mean it wasn't being researched, wasn't being built, wasn't being tested. I mean, I've got to say, 2007 was one of the most incredible seasons of all time, if not the best. Um, and this just added to it, didn't it? It was it was drama on track. It was drama off track. And really, before we, we, we give our ratings, Matt, do, do you want to give your opinion on this conspiracy, your rating, given everything that you know? Yes, my rating on it, is a 12 out of 10. It is James Bond in a Nomex suit. You have defections to different teams. You have covert document exchanges. You have, you know, the biggest drivers in the game being involved. You have a disparity in the fines levied against the teams, you know, and, 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 and. It's almost like the entire field knew it was happening, but they made an example of McLaren and, <laughs> McLaren still got away with it and were able to race the next year and still almost won the driver's championship. It just, it, it's, it's impossible to understand all the angles, but I had so much fun learning more about it because we've all heard about it, but the depth of corruption and intrigue with it, just my God. 
So Matt, uh, just to put it back into the scales that we're working with, you're giving this a 10 out of 10. (laughs) 12 out of 10. It needs an extended scale. My guy thinks this is a conspiracy of a conspiracy theory theory. (laughs) That's good old American maths there. It's like Inception. A conspiracy within a conspiracy theory is a conspiracy. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you. Cal, I'm going to give it to you next. Out of 10, and what are your thoughts on this? I'm going to give it a, a 10 out of 10, purely because it's a proven conspiracy theory. You know, there was fines, they were found out. There's nothing more to say. All the evidence is there for everyone to see. It's, it's clear as day. It it was, like you say, Spygate. It's the biggest thing to ever happen in F1 corruption-wise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, there's no argument. It's a 10-10. Uh, well, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, uh, I think the depths of it, like Matt has elaborated on, the, I mean, the whole Renault side of it, something I'd for, genuinely forgotten about. Um, yeah, me too, me too. So oh, it's got to be a ten. The just the the complete the completeness of the corruption, the almost the almost like homemade the James Bond vibe with the whole kind of going to mm-hmm. a, a photocopying shop and getting it printed. The the coincidence that I mean, what if it hadn't been a defosi? What if it had been average Joe who had no idea about, about the sport at all? I'm telling you um, that's dodgy, man. I'm telling you there's something not right there I, in that coffee I, shop. I, I, I don't know. I I reckon he went to make a grande latte and he went, oh, that's <laughs> a bit odd. Um, but yeah, I, I 100% 10 out of 10. It's for me also one of the most interesting conspiracy theories of sports in sport, in just sport in general, actually. Mm-hmm. It is. It's incredible. It's a 10 out of 10 from me. We are agreed as a panel. So I... here's my follow-up for you guys. How, if you are the FIA governing body, do you not completely destroy Renault after you have raised McLaren to the ground? My theory on it, Bernie Eccleston paid them off to keep it all hush-hush or keep them off Renault's back because, like I say... Renault and Fernando Alonso at that time were current reigning champions. You do not put a bad bad light on those people. They're the people making your F1 company what it is at that moment in are time. You, are you saying that would then devalue the previous season as well? Is that what you're saying? It would. Yes. Right. It would you. diminish F1's history for the last mm. two years. It would diminish Fernando Alonso being a two-time world champion. It would diminish Renault being world champions again. That Bernie was never going to let that happen, regardless of who was getting involved. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he paid them off or managed to sweet talk them or whatever, but I believe that there was an intervention there that prevented that from happening. I think it's also a um, maybe a French thing. I mean, the FIA is a French organization. Um, they have obviously Renault have been involved in the sport for donkeys years, and I mean, just I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, and correct me if I'm. This sounds like a massive leap of reality, but. Uh, the uh, the whole incident with the racing point last year, Renault were protesting that very heavily and the FIA took them seriously, even though we all sort of knew there wasn't really a case there and it didn't seem that, well, in my opinion, it didn't seem that legitimate. Maybe that's subject for another podcast, but this, I, I don't know why. Renault always seemed to have this weird amount of sort of, oh, oh we yeah. have an idea about uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, it is probably based on complete faction and fiction, but uh, you are going to take us seriously, no? And I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's well dodgy. I can't believe they got away with it. I agree with Callum. I think Bernie Bernie hushed it up to contain the problem. I agree with Will, actually. Now I think about it. Think of the people who have been involved with Renault. Alan Prost, Fernando Alonso. They are two people you do not disagree with. 
are they? Like, would you ever say no to Fernando Alonso or Arvin Ex- Prost? Exactly. And, and you I'm would Prost... stand there <sighs> pooing and weeing. Yes, all right, we'll and crush it up, sure. Like, you'd, be, you'd be scared. They're scary people. If you say no to Fernando Alonso, career You're essentially career exactly it's career suicide. Just yeah, he'll block you in the pits and you'll be screwed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, salty. <laughs> so my take on it is this: number one, with all the counter suits that came out of it, you know, as soon as McLaren was cleared of any wrongdoing the first go around, McLaren messed up. They could have just slid underneath the radar and gone dodge that bullet. Instead, they're like, uh uh-uh, uh, but Ferrari was mean. They told lies on us and basically opened themselves back up to it while the entire paddock is potentially doing it, has knowledge of it, and basically made their own bed by not recognizing a clear cut win for them when it was gifted to them. Uh, so Bernie doesn't want to be sitting in court for the entire next five years going back and forth, back and forth, potentially tarnishing the brand as a whole. And let's face it, You've got to make money. At the end of the day, as we always say on this podcast, F1's a business. And it came down to if we lose the credibility of the sport, the competitive spirit of the sport, savory or not, it hurts and it costs money. So the next conspiracy we've got, we are going to take a quick break, but the next one is um, very, very closely linked to this one. We're going to remain with the 2007 season. And we're going to figure out, was there any foul play with selecting who won it? We'll be back on the other side. Welcome back to the Cut to the Race podcast. It is conspiracy time. Um, we've already spoken about, so far, we've spoken about um, Imola with Will. We've spoken about Spygate with Matt, which is 2007. And we're going to continue with 2007. So 2007 was a year when a certain man came on the scene. He was the reigning GP2 champion in 2006. And it was his first year in F1 with the team McLaren with Alonso, who just left Ferrari, as his teammate. Now, it's worth just pointing out, this on, on this year, 2007, only two constructors won a race, Ferrari and McLaren. And as we've heard, there was a heck of a lot going on throughout this year regarding uh, documentation and sharing of details and things like that. However, the young Brit Lewis Hamilton took his first win on the sixth race of his career in F1 in Canada. You may remember this as the same race that Kubica crashed horrifically. And um, I actually watched it back when I was when I was um, writing this. And you can actually see his feet hanging out the bottom of the car when you look at it. It was a horrific oh, crash. Now, the conspiracy here, we're going to we're going to cut forward. We, we know what's happened in this year. And it was a wild year. So let's go to Brazil. It's the final race of the season. After this year, the FIA actually appointed a steward um, to be inside of the McLaren pit garage and to make sure that there was equality between Hamilton and Alonso um, for this Brazilian weekend. In qualifying, Hamilton uh, was coming out the pits and he was caught off guard by Kimi on a flying lap and that actually cost Kimi some time. Kimi then finished in second behind Massa Massa went even faster. Hamilton took P2. 
So the starting grid was Massa, followed by Hamilton, followed by Kimi, followed by Alonso. Now, if we if we look at this season as a whole so far, Lewis was top of the championship since Spain, which was in May. And he went into this final race as the absolute favourite. The championship standings before the race started, Hamilton had 107 points. Alonso was in second with 103 and Raikkonen was on 100 points. So at this point, it's anyone's race to win. And as we've already spoken about, there's a lot going on behind the scenes um, throughout this season as well. So this is the championship showdown. All Lewis had to do was finish fifth as long as Alonso didn't win it and he would be the world champion. Simple as that. That should have been an easy task for Lewis Hamilton starting in second. Was it? No. The race starts. Massa blocks Hamilton, allowing Kimi past. So Kimi goes into P2. Into turn two, Kimi brake checks Hamilton for no obvious reason, causing Hamilton to brake suddenly, and Alonso overtakes Hamilton. Lewis, being Lewis Hamilton, into turn four, slipstreams him all the way up and attacks back at Alonso and runs wide off the track. And at this point, he drops to eighth position out of the championship. But we all know this is Lewis. Uh, he fights back. He overtook Trilly on lap two, moving up to seventh. Then on lap six, he overtook Heifelt. And then something very, very, very strange happened. Just turning into turn four, the car dropped into neutral. He slowed down. The gearbox was not selecting a gear. And Hamilton remained in neutral for 30 seconds, dropping him back to 18th on the grid. If we continue on, just talking about the gearbox, there were no further faults, issues, or anything wrong with that gearbox at all. There, there were no further issues. It reset itself, and Hamilton continued after 30 seconds. Lap 20, Hamilton is back on target to take the championship win. When McLaren make a bizarre choice uh, to, 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 to light fill him with the fuel, and meaning he would need to take a third pit stop, losing yet another 28 seconds. Massa makes an error, um, handing the win to Kimi. Kimi wins, Massa finishes second, Alonso third, and most importantly, Hamilton finishes seventh, losing the championship by one point. What I also want to touch on here is that Rosberg, who was in the Williams Toyota, finished in fourth. Kubica in the BMW Sauber finished in fifth. And Nick Heifel in the BMW Sauber finished sixth, ahead of Hamilton. Post-race, the race stewards investigated an alleged irregularity with the fuel in both the Williams and BMW cars that finished in front of Hamilton. There were no penalties to these cars based on lack of conclusive evidence, which McLaren obviously appealed. This appeal was rejected by the FIA. However, if it had been accepted, the championship likely would have been handed over to Hamilton, as he would have finished within the points to win the championship. Now, in 2012, Hamilton was interviewed by Mark Hughes, who I'm sure lots of us have heard of. And this, was, this, this interview took place in Monaco, and he was asked to comment on what had gone on that season. And Hamilton responded in one of the very 
one of the only times he's ever spoken about this. And he said, I didn't know at the time, but I do now. It's not something I can talk about. So what happened in this race to Lewis Hamilton? Option one, um, it was actually reported in the newspaper that Hamilton admitted he was at fault. And he even was quoted saying that he had made a mistake. McLaren strongly denied that Lewis ever said this. And strangely, it was followed by a statement from that paper, that Canadian paper who had published that, uh, called La Presse. They admitted that they had not even spoken to Lewis and quoted in error. Very strange. Onboard footage of the exact event shows Hamilton driving as normal, and it was not a result of Lewis pressing a button or doing anything differently. And McLaren backed this up with a formal statement. McLaren also said if the gearbox issue had been mechanical, mechanical issues don't fix themselves. There was no sign of any evidence to support that it was a um, software issue. And there was absolutely no data suggesting that it was a sensor failure that had put it into neutral. McLaren concluded that the barrels that change gear went out of control. And the driver of that cause is likely to be a hydraulic issue. But most importantly, no evidence was ever found to explain that failure. So my conspiracy, very, very linked into Matt's Spygate conspiracy. Um, Hamilton was the victim of political games between McLaren, Max Mosley, who threatened to ban McLaren from 2008. I hand it over to you guys for your thoughts. Okay, so the gearbox issue. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. If it was hydraulic, hydraulics don't just fix themselves. Okay, they're, they're, once they go, they go. They don't just sort of murmur out of control and then come back to life. They're, so mechanically, it was probably sound if it carried on for the rest of the race without a hiccup. That means it must have been electrical. Like the sensors that the, the garage can control, people pressing buttons and things like that. Now, Matt, you'll probably know this more than me, but was the technology advanced enough in 2007 for the pit crew or the people on the wall to be able to press a button and actually control things in the car? Was that a, at that stage there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but also one of the things at the time, in, especially in the recent years, is the coaching. The engineers would coach the drivers on how to change the different map and fuel strategies and all of that, but they still have the ability to change certain parameters and baud rates and stuff like that on the pit wall. They do have some control. They can't do as much as the driver remotely, but they do have a fair amount of interface. Okay, so is it likely that they could have literally flicked a switch put his gearbox into neutral for 30 seconds, then flicked it back on? In essence, yes. Uh, could they have... So with the module flow, you have... And this, this is going off of my knowledge as a mechanic for road-going cars. You're going to have master modules and gateway modules to where identification data will flow through one module into an overall central control computer and it will make the decisions for the car. If you eliminate a gateway module, that flow of information stops. So it wouldn't be necessarily that they turned a module off 
they could have turned the flow of communication data off. That would be the most likely scenario with a for it to then restart, keep going, and all of that. That's the best way I could see it do. It's called CAN data. Uh, would be the best way to do that. Let's let's say that it wasn't anything to do with the team or the gearbox being mechanically faulty. It was just a little gremlin that sorted itself out. The issue I have as well is that they only fueled him lightly. The argument is that they fuel him lightly. Okay, that makes him go faster. He's lighter. He can go faster. He can catch up. He's in 18th. He needs to go fast if he's got any chance. They fuel him heavily. Is he is he less likely, especially around a track like Interlagos, where it's quite um, the corners are quite sharp. You need to be heavy on the brakes and things like that. Is the hot, is the car being heavy going to make him not get from 18th all the way back up the grid where he needs to be? There's there's two sides to that argument. I'll leave that with you. There are two sides, and McLaren did release a statement saying um, it was because they didn't think the tyres were going to last. So they did a short stint, followed by a, a second one. But, because of that tyre regulation stating that it has to make it to the end. Exactly. But the, 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 the data is that Lewis would have won the World Championship if they had not taken that decision. And McLaren are clearly not stupid they've won a heck of a lot of races that season they know what they're doing they're on their game spygate to one side uh, they're a pretty well operating team uh, aren't they matt they are uh and on the mechanical side of things callum you made a very very good point about how if it's a mechanical failure let's say a band clutch let's go in that gearbox it's not going to magically reweld itself if it is a restriction in the hydraulic system that would lead to quote unquote contamination of the fluid is the most likely cause in a hydraulic system. The surgical sterility with which every component of an F1 car is treated when it is installed and calibrated, uh, nigh impossible. I, the micron filters they have in line, the systems for these pumps will catch anything. It's coming out of a hermetically sealed container that is pristine, new, never opened. Uh, so I eliminate that possibility. It just, it, <laughs> the only way to do it is outside interference. The, in the whole thing stinks. And I'm going to just, just recap on the FIA uh, steward being in, in the garage, right? When was the last time we saw that happen for driver equality? We've seen Lewis and Rosberg. We've seen, we've seen fights, right? We, we've seen all sorts of driver fights. And never have they stuck a steward in there. Uh, to keep their eye on things before, have they? That, that to me, smells funny. The second thing that smells funny is gearbox issue. The third is the dodgy pit stop. Fourth is the uh, Williams and BMW investigation that just got completely shut down about their fuel irregularities. Um, that was another yet another chance for him to, to claim that championship. I do note Hamilton said he wouldn't have wanted to win in those circumstances, but yet again, it was another way he could have shut down. I would, I would like to open up. I mean, how, how can you argue that that was just all went in the wrong way? I find it, I don't know, I've personally, just listening to all you guys, um, you, you know, natter on, I find it amazing. I think it's so extreme and so improbable, it must be true. I know that sounds naive, but... The, like you were saying, Matt, the likelihood of a mechanical issue going wrong in such a way, and then and then not going wrong, and and not leaving any impact. No, you know, there's no visible trace or clue. It, I reckon it's it's 
I reckon it's probably legit. I mean, it's so odd. And evidently McLaren were kind of baffled by that. So what you're saying, Will, is 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 the the conspiracy is legit, right? Rather than the, the failure is legit. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Yeah. Yeah. Matt? One of my key hangs up with this is if you look at aircraft, aircraft have backup systems for everything because as long as they have the thrust to weight ratio to get off the ground, they're concerned about safety. In F1, very rarely do you see a mechanical or electrical issue or component fail and then rectify itself. Because there is no secondary hydraulic pump. There is, all of it is a one-shot system. That's why it's so rigorously tested. If a component fails, it's done and dusted. It's over. You're retiring the car. So for that car to essentially be dead on track and then, oh, yeah, I'm a race car. i got to go. Doesn't hold water with me. Followed all. by a mysterious pit stop. Followed by a non-investigation that the FIA would have always investigated. Exactly. And this actually is another point I specifically left out of my uh, little conspiracy earlier. Is this why Lewis and Fernando were not hit with Spygate? Was this a sacrifice in order to keep McLaren able to compete in 2008? Because it's very easy to say you guys have done wrong and have all these illicit dealings and we're going to punish you at the end with everybody anticipating the buildup for the season finale. It gets handed to Ferrari, but you're able to compete next year. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my conspiracy. Um, well, not my conspiracy, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna evaluate this uh, with a probability of nine out of ten. Um, I believe that Lewis Hamilton was the victim of political games, um, and it was, it was, f- it was fixed that he wouldn't have won it that year. Um, this is coming from a Lewis Hamilton fan, but I remember very, very, very clearly watching that season and just being baffled by this. Paul does not seem shocked by that. Oh, call. no. But I, oh, I, d- what poor Lewis. Oh, Lulu. <laughs> I, he did not win. I want him to win. But I continued to watch F1, so I hand my... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm going to give it to Cal. I can see his brain working on overtime right now. Cal, what's your, uh, what's your rating on this one? I'm on the fence because I think to actually pull it off and disguise it, if they were tampering with his gearbox or anything like that, they've done a tremendous job. But in the same breath, the strategy, the, the gearbox going and all that, it's its all possible and probable to happen. You know, cars and machines aren't under our control 100% all of the time. Like There is things that can go wrong. So for me, I'm going to have to give it a 6 out of 10. The mechanical side, I don't think is they tampered with it, but the the pit stop strategy, I think, is a bit dodgy. So I'm going to give it a 6. Okay. And and again, the the, the cover-up, everyone was in on it. You know, that was the that was the benefit. It almost wasn't a cover-up. Matt, sorry, (laughs) Matt, over to you. I'm going to call it an 8 out of 10 probability, uh, twofold. First being, if it was a malicious programming install on one of the modules or a shutdown reset of a module or reformatting of the module on the fly, that makes sense for what happened as to how it miraculously recovered and started functioning. Uh, But also I'm taking into account the nepotism that was prevalent in the FIA controlling bodies at the time. Uh, I would not put this past Max Mosley. 
at all. And I think the disparity with which teams were treated and Spygate and through all the infractions throughout the years under his tenure, it is not outside the realm of possibility. So I, as much as it pains me to, the, the older I've gotten, the more informed I've become. It may have actually happened. Okay, and that leaves one. Uh, Will? So after several minutes of personal debate and inner self-conflict, um, I would say that my rating for this would be around about six, six and a half. Um, Formula One management, as uh, some members of our company would attest, uh, is not the most ethically sound place. Um, and uh, and I think that the likelihood, I mean, you know, we see the, the tiny margin that Raikkonen won that championship that year by. I mean, unbelievably small. Um, I think there can only be really one conclusion. I I'd I, I just, I verge on not, you know, getting up to the eights and the tens kind of level, purely because I think there is, I think there's a substantial amount of uh, of doubt you know, as there is with many things in life. So I think there's still a still room for argument, 100%. And I'd be really interested to see what our commenters um, and our listeners have to say on that because uh, we are not the definitive definitive answer on this whatsoever. Um, but yeah, that's that's just my initial thought. Thank you, Will. Uh, and no, we're not. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts on the Cut to the Race podcast group on Facebook. Um, we're going to take a quick break, go and empty the bladders, refill the drinks, and we'll be back with our final... Final conspiracy of the evening, which Cal is going to bring to us. Welcome back. The drinks are refilled. The bladders Woo-hoo! are emptied. Um, Will is enjoying himself as he always Let's does. Go. He's not the only one. Um, I think we've been recording this probably for in the region of two hours so far. So it, it's been a journey. Cal, you, you are going to uh, round off with the last conspiracy that was voted for from our, our Facebook fans. Over to you. I'm going to take you right to the very beginning on this journey. Sprinkle some spice along the way and make it story time. So boys and girls, sit back, relax and listen to what I have to tell you. So Lewis and Nico came into racing at a very similar time in their lives. Hamilton started at eight years old in 1993, Nico two years earlier in 91. Now, the pairs were first teammates in 2000. Still in karting, they raced for Mercedes-Benz McLaren in Formula A, where Hamilton became the European champion, with Rosberg not far behind. Now, Robert Kubica actually raced with them at that time and recalled how competitive both were on and off the track. They would even have races eating pizza, always eating two at a time. That's how competitive they were, even at that age. So, their old karting boss... Dino Chiesa actually admitted that Hamilton was the faster driver, with Rosberg being the more analytical. Now, this led most people to believe that Rosberg would actually be the one achieving greatness in F1 due to the high level of intelligence needed to actually operate an F1 car. You need to understand the brakes, the energy harvesting, the tyre management and the fuel usage lap by lap. Now, leading up to Formula 1, the pair actually took different paths. Hamilton was signed to the McLaren Young Drivers Programme in 1998 after he approached Ron Dennis at an award ceremony and he actually said, I want to be racing your cars one day. 
Now, Hamilton won British Formula Renault, the Formula 3 Euro Series and GP2. And he went on to make his debut for McLaren in 2007. Rosberg won the 2002 Formula BMW title and tested a Williams car in 2004. After winning GP2 in 2005, he was confirmed as a Williams driver in 2006. So Rosberg actually started in Formula 1 a year earlier than Hamilton. Now, cut to 2012, it's announced that Hamilton would be leaving McLaren to join Mercedes for the 2013 season, partnering Nico Rosberg. He signed a three-year contract, and obviously this was massive news at the time because Mercedes had no recent history of success. This was a huge gamble for both Rosberg and Hamilton for their careers. Mercedes finished runner-up to Red Bull in the Constructors, Hamilton finished fourth in the Drivers' Championship after winning in Hungary, securing three third-place podiums and five pole positions. Rosberg, despite winning two races, finished sixth with four podiums and three pole positions. Now, the first sign of tension actually began this year um, at the 2013 Malaysian GP, where team orders kept Rosberg off the podium, even though Hamilton was on it. Now, Rosberg was faster, but team orders kept Hamilton there. So that's where the tension actually first began between this pair. Now, 2014. After the pre-season testing, Mercedes were widely considered as the title favourites. The turbo hybrid era had begun and Mercedes had cracked the code. So Rosberg won in Australia. Uh, Hamilton actually had to retire in Australia, but Hamilton then went and won in Malaysia. Now, Bahrain is where the sparks started to fly, the jewel in the desert, if you like. Hamilton is first, Rosberg second. Now, a late safety car seemed to be in favour of Rosberg as he was on the faster tyre. But Hamilton stood his ground and the pair remained first and second. Even though they were closely fighting on track, they didn't make contact. But here's where the first dodgy little bit of spice comes in. It's later revealed that Rosberg had used engine modes that were actually banned by Mercedes in a bid to get past Hamilton. Two weeks later in Monaco, Hamilton needed a win to go to the top of the championship. He held off a charging Rosberg in the latter stages of the race. He used said banned engine modes that Rosberg used in Bahrain to keep behind him. Two weeks later, after both drivers had used banned engine modes in two races in a row, Monaco happens. Hamilton was faster in all three practice sessions and again in Q2. Now, in the closing stages in P3, Rosberg sets provisional pole. But he runs deep into one of the corners and drove into a slip road, prompting yellow flags and causing Hamilton to abort his last effort for pole position. Rosberg and Hamilton started the race in P1 and P2 respectively and finished the same way. But now the media suggested foul play at Rosberg going into the slip road, causing Hamilton to not get pole position. Now, Hamilton replied to this saying, potentially, I should have known that was going to happen. Now, stewards cleared Rosberg of any wrongdoing and Toto Wolff called it bull. Despite this, Hamilton felt Rosberg ruined his lap and purpose and decided to declare that they were no longer friends. What a shame. Now, in Hungary, Rosberg qualified on pole, and Hamilton had to start at the back of the grid due to a fuel leak that set his car on fire during qualifying. Hamilton fought through the field, got himself into a decent position, 
and a mid-race safety car came out and shuffled the order, putting Rosberg behind because he's on a different strategy. Now, Mercedes order Hamilton to let him through, but Hamilton refuses to let him by because he's worked so hard to get into the position he's in. He doesn't want to let Rosberg go. Now, Hamilton held on to third, kept Rosberg at bay, and Mercedes suggested that Hamilton's actions cost Rosberg and therefore the team victory. Now, Nicky Lauder came out and defended Lewis, saying from his point of view, Lewis was in the right and he, he could have stayed there for all they cared. Now, moving on, Belgian GP. Two made contact at this Grand Prix. Rosberg was hounded for hitting Hamilton, breaking his front wing and giving Lewis a puncture, pretty much ending his race. He had no chance of catching back up from there. Rosberg managed to recover to second behind Daniel Ricciardo. It later emerged that Rosberg had left the nose of his car in Hamilton's way to prove a point to his teammate by not backing out. I've just got to say, I was there exactly where that happened. That's, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rosberg got booed on the podium. By me. And was forced to apologise and dis disciplinary measures were taken. Hamilton claimed he thought Rosberg had hit him deliberately, with the Telegraph journalist Oliver Brown describing the remark as cement-brained and another example of Hamilton's victimhood. Now we go to the end of the season, Abu Dhabi, where for the first time in F1 history, teams and drivers could score the double amount of points for race positions. Hamilton had a perfect start passing Rosberg before Turn 1. Hamilton stayed there, won the World Championship. Rosberg had ERS systems, finished 14th. But Rosberg went into the cool-down room after the race, congratulated Hamilton, and Hamilton later came out and said Rosberg was very gracious in defeat. Now, 2014 is done. They had a bit of spice, bit of altercations, job done. 2015. Nothing really happened between the two in this season, I won't lie to you, it was pretty boring. Hamilton wrapped up the title three, three races early in Austin. Now, going into 2016, this is where it all really kicks off. Rosberg wins the four first races of the season. He'd actually finished on a seven-streak win from the end of last season into the start of 2016. Now, coming into the Spanish Grand Prix, Rosberg led by 43 points. Hamilton claimed pole position ahead of Rosberg, and after a good start, Rosberg actually passed Hamilton around the outside of Turn 1. Coming through the next few corners, Rosberg's car had entered an incorrect engine mode due to an error that Rosberg had put in on the formation lap. This meant he was slower coming out of Turn 3, and Hamilton got back alongside him. But as we all probably remember this famous incident, Rosberg pushes him over onto the grass, and by the end of the straight, they're both colliding, sliding into the gravel. It's really iconic. Hamilton has his head in his hands. One of the biggest moments of my life. And um, if you haven't heard the version with the Titanic music behind it, then check it out. Yeah, and it was deemed as a racing incident. Now, Hamilton obviously said that it was Rosberg's fault, and Rosberg actually said it was Hamilton's fault and vice versa. Now... They deemed it as a racing incident because Hamilton was coming out of the corner a lot faster than Rosberg. Now, Nicky Lauder actually pointed the blame towards Hamilton, saying it was too aggressive, it was stupid, and they could have won the race. Afterwards, Hamilton insisted he'd 
Hamilton insisted the incident did not harm his relationship with Rosberg, which he later admitted had mellowed since 2014. Now, 2016 Austrian Grand Prix. Rosberg, struggling with a brake issue, looked on course to win, but in the final laps, Hamilton closed in and a mistake from Rosberg at turn one on the last lap gave him a better drive on the long run into turn three. Hamilton pit the outside, moving alongside Rosberg as they approached the corner. Now, Hamilton turned in to make the corner, but Rosberg went straight on. Now, if you, you know what Austria's like, it's going uphill, very sharp turn. Turn three, quite a sharp turn. Rosberg goes straight on. Hamilton's trying to go around the outside. Now, Hamilton actually passed him to win the race. Rosberg dropped into fourth because he cocked up the corner, locked up, went straight on. Luckily, Hamilton was going so fast he went past him. Now, both drivers, again, blamed each other. Toto Wolff was furious and threatened team orders in future races. The stewards blamed Rosberg for the incident, actually issuing him with two penalty points for not allowing racing room. Now, cut to the final race in Abu Dhabi. Rosberg entered the round with a 12-point lead over Hamilton in the World Drivers' Championship. In the final laps of the race, Hamilton defied team orders, first from his race engineer and then from the team's technical director, and deliberately slowed to back Rosberg into the chasing pack at the end of the race in a bid to encourage rivals Vettel and Verstappen to overtake his teammate. I love Verstappen. I'm sad that didn't happen which would have allowed him to win the World Championship. Despite Hamilton's tactics, Rosberg finished in second and clinched his World Championship by five points over Hamilton. Ooh. And then we all know, five days later, Rosberg retires. Now, here's the conspiracy. In Malaysia, Hamilton had a severe engine issue, which saw flames shooting out the back of the car, proper engine malfunction. Now, the championship was really close, Rosberg had had his work cut out trying to fend off Lewis Hamilton. A quote from Lewis Hamilton when he was asked on this, all those points disappear when you've worked so hard to get them. But yeah, it's very odd feeling right now, I have to say, to stand here and be positive and say, yeah, it's going to be great because, you know, I'm the only one with Mercedes engines right now that have been failing this year. Out of all the engines, it, it just doesn't sit right with me. That's what he said. Now, Call me a conspiracy theorist, but this is a bit weird. Now, Hamilton's engines were the only ones that were failing in 2016. Why weren't Rosberg's? If Hamilton didn't hadn't retired in Malaysia, the chances are he would have won the world championship. He would have had enough by coming in first in Abu Dhabi to win the championship. He would have been seven point, two points clear, I believe. Now, how do you go a full season without an engine malfunction for Rosberg, but multiple for Hamilton? So here's the conspiracy. Mercedes tampering with the engine because they wanted a German driver to win in their German car. After Hamilton had already won two, they'd got the Constructors' Championship in the bag. They knew that because they were so dominant. They could risk playing these games to get their German little guy to win. I'll pass it on to you guys. Do you know what? I think... I think when you break it down in the way that you have, Cal, it, um, it it reminds you that this wasn't just one season. This wasn't just one uh, engine blowout. This was a a lifetime of rivalry between the two of them. And mm. what strikes me the most is is Hamilton's reaction to this because he's been through 
let's not forget, we've already spoken about him a few times on this show. He's been through some tough times in his career where he should have won and he didn't. But he he was really down over this particular retirement. And he, he said, and you know, I, I quote, um, someone doesn't want me to win this year. My question to Mercedes, we have so many engines, but mine are the only ones failing this year. And that's, that's a direct quote. Now, he's a world champion at this point. It's 2016. He's a mature man. He's learned how to deal with the media. But he goes and says something like that, which says, to me personally, it says, I ain't, I ain't happy about this. Something else is going on here. But my argument is, um, forgetting that I'm a Hamilton fan, there were championships where Nico had all the failures, which is where you could say, Maybe Nico should have won that year. Um, Nico didn't have a, a, a you know a clean history, and even if we look at, for example, Bottas in twenty twenty, Bottas has had the bad luck. Hamilton hasn't. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure on this one. I, I'm really not. I think, I think Hamilton's reaction says a lot, though. Matt, I, I'll take your opinion on this. Very quickly on my end, uh, I will say that I feel. Lewis Hamilton has learned to deal with adversity better throughout the years. Uh, the only way I can see from a mechanically oriented side of things that Rosberg was given quote unquote superior engines with the base engine systems would be the metallurgical composition of the engine. Uh, you can do a mass spectrometer analysis to see the different levels of impurities and things of that nature. Uh, and the components are rigorously tested at the at the factory, so they're all the same parts manufactured to the same standards. However, you're going to have better and worse parts. If that were to be the case, though, for everything to pan out perfectly for quote unquote perfectly for Rosberg and it being a deliberate sabotage, racing is racing. You're going to have components wear, tear, and eventually blow up. Well, Matt, what they said was, <clears throat> Mercedes actually said, their analysis showed that Lewis suffered a big-end bearing failure. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know what that means. So, and big-end bearing, uh, in my parlance, doesn't really help me out. What I'm listening to and thinking of is flame shooting out of the car and the bearing. Most of the bearings, the biggest bearings in that car will be the crankshaft bearings that actually, so you have the engine block, the bearing, then the crankshaft itself. It provides a higher lubricity to keep the crankshaft rotating over with less impedance. Uh, the bearings themselves, you're looking at differences in the oil gap clearances. You're normally shooting for about 30 thousandths of an inch on a road going car. In an F1 car, they're down to about 11 thousandths of an inch because they're using a better shear oil. Uh, it's just, you're operating on the knife edge the same way the drivers are. For them to say that a set of bearings didn't hold mustard or failed for him is just that's too small of a technical gap for me to say that it was a failure in construction or manufacturing. What, what I have found weird is when I've watched this back um, today before we started recording is the reaction of Toto Wolf. It's it's a weird one, and I think I think listeners they need to go and, and watch this themselves because it wasn't a Toto reaction um, in 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 my. In my Opinion. Anyway, Cal, what, what 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 do you think about his reaction? Yeah, that, that 
that's part of what did it for me. I think he, it all seemed a bit pre-planned with the reactions of everybody. And yeah, it, it's just so convenient that the German driver in the German car won. Now, like you say, previous seasons, Rosberg had issues and I pointed that out. But this was all so convenient and coincidental, especially with Rosberg retiring five days later. Now, in the 18 years that they raced together, Rosberg never bested Hamilton, ever. But he does all of a sudden in 2016. What lap was it that that failure happened? Oh, I'm not sure. It was near the end of the race, if I remember correctly. Um, what I've got in front of me says it was 618 kilometres before it happened, but I, <laughs> I'm no mathematician here. Uh, but that suggests to me it was near the end of the race. Will, what do you... Um, what do you make of this? I, I think, um, I think it's legit. I think the conspiracy theory actually has more of an element of truth to it than, than I, than than you, you know, than I initially would have thought after after listening to Cal's um, deep dive on that. Um, it makes sense. A German driver, a German team, uh, Hamilton having been so dominant for the last two years, they were kind of keen to see you know a change, and I reckon. I mean, the, I reckon. I reckon actually, it was potentially a long time coming. Um, uh, Rosberg's retirement. He uh, he said in an interview, I think with, oh gosh, um, I think it was the owner of Hugo Boss um, that he did on his YouTube channel when he was prepping and training for the 2016 season. It was the hardest thing he'd ever done. He he saw virtually nobody outside of his his family and his work colleagues. He would only ever, you know, go to the gym after a race weekend or before. Um, he would never, you know, he, he his social life was completely cut off and he didn't really get to enjoy that year as, as a normal person might want to have done. Um, so I think definitely we have to remember that Rosberg committed an unbelievable amount of effort to get fit enough, to get strong enough and to, uh, and to be mentally prepared to beat Lewis. But it does seem a tad too convenient and in such a way that, you got to, You've got to think there must be something going on there with the engines. Yeah, Matt. I'll say there are three points that really make me question the validity of the claim that Mercedes sabotaged Hamilton this year. Number one, just from a pure mechanical side of things, if we're talking big end bearings, the amount of there's no way you can tell that that bearing is going to fail before the end of the race or later stages of the race. It, it, it's it's too perfect a timing on that uh, for a bearing to let go. That That's fucking wizardry. Secondly, we just said that Nico Rosberg has never bested Hamilton until that year. So if Lewis Hamilton is already considered the quote-unquote better driver, he's already a world champion, what does Mercedes stand to gain by sabotaging Lewis Hamilton to cater or pander to the quote-unquote inferior driver, all still a remarkable talent, not on the same level as Lewis Hamilton. And number three, if there was to be a Mercedes conspiracy to cut the legs out from under Lewis Hamilton that year, that would have had to have been predetermined before the season ever even began to have when that engine was constructed. It's just, it's too far of a stretch. And I think... The same way that some of us, when we see failures of our drivers on track, we kind of sit there in that just bitter disappointment face of just you know, scowling at the TV. I think that's the emotion that Total Wolf was feeling 
with Lewis's engine failure in that it's just pure anger and he's keeping himself composed and measured mm. because he is the consummate professional. Damn it, Ollie, I hate you making me defend Mercedes. But <laughs> those are the those are the three things that make me really put pause on it and say and let's also look at this. We also stated that Lewis Hamilton had never been best by Nico Rosberg. Would that not piss you off? Make you want to say, this is my shot. I, I'm going to do things I've never done before. I'm going to push further and harder in my training than I ever have to try and finally make it happen when it counts. I, I, I yeah. think instead of it being a cheat on Lewis Hamilton, we need to look at it as the Herculean superhuman effort that Nico Rosberg put in. Do you know what, I, Matt? I... I um... I, I, I really agree with you. Uh, I'm not a Nico Rosberg fan. I never was, and certainly not when he was uh, fighting with Hamilton. Um, but I think in order to win that championship, he had to transform himself as a human being. And he gave up everything. And he's spoken very, very openly about the mental health challenges that he had and, and the, you know, the self-belief. And even for his family, you know, he, he put things on hold. And... For Nico, okay, I think we can, you know, some people may hate this, but we, we can say that Lewis is a better driver than Nico. But for, for Nico to win that championship, if I were him, I would retire. I'd say, sure, I've beaten the best, I'm out. Um, I don't blame him for that at all. I really don't. Um, to, to give my two, two penance on this... Um, Hamilton started this conspiracy himself by saying, oh, it's the higher powers, I need to talk to Mercedes. I'm not sure Lewis was referring to the higher powers as internal Mercedes, to be honest. I'm, I, I, Lewis should be at a point where he has a lot of faith in this team. They've, they've made him a world champion two times before that. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's who he was referring to, Cal. What I will say on that is that I agree with you on the Rosberg front. I think he probably did put all the effort he could into beating Hamilton in 2016. You know, after two seasons of him winning a title and the season before that, in beating him, it would grate on you, wouldn't it? You'd want to try your hardest. But what I will say is that I don't think Mercedes, if they were conspiring against Hamilton, that they had Rosberg in on it I think it was their own doing wanting that German driver winning the ger in the German car mm. I don't think Rosberg had anything to do with it I'm not saying that I think that was purely Mercedes plotting behind everyone's backs it That's was an inner circle kind of thing mm. okay I, on the I think actually uh, picking up from that the, the on the contentious point of Rosberg retiring which seems to be where some of the conspiracy lies it's like well, why would he retire I'm I'm not really surprised by that. If you listen to the way that he talks, the way that he's very pragmatic about life, the way that he discusses his family, his, it's a lot of business work that he's doing, admittedly, now that he's left F1, but even before then. Um, and, and the fact, and this is not a, this is not a, a stereotype by any means, but by the fact that he is a, 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 a multicultural European German, he's a pragmatic guy. You know, the Germans are very pragmatic. That is that is a characteristic as well as being uh, efficient, as we all like to know, you know, because everyone, we all drive Mercedes and BMWs. Um, 
he, he is a pragmatic man. You can hear that in his voice and the way that he talks about stuff and the way that he's passionate and the way that he also doesn't really care about certain things. So I think the fact that he retired, I think it was Matt who said that he was probably just sick of it all and wanted to get the hell out of there. Um, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's the most human reaction that I've seen from an F1 driver in a long time. I think on that point, talking about being sick of it all, uh, granted, I am not a Mercedes know-it-all at all as I'm wearing a Ferrari jacket. Uh, with the level of dedication and the extreme level of training that Nico Rosberg undertook that year, I think I equate it to almost like a uh, Tibetan monk training. It was almost a zealot-like existence yeah, yeah. to overcome the disparity in talent. Not belittling Nico Rosberg's talent. Like I say, I won't mm. besmudge the man. That's a word. Big grudge, I think. It is now. That's the, that's the one. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the... We're teaching our colonial friend how to talk <laughs> Words are hard, boys. Uh, I'll say that if you go through that rigorous regimen that he went through, and he is a family man. He it The all-encompassing existence of that off-season mm. and training for him was single-minded, almost like a Rocky montage. Like, he's holding a a picture or a poster of Lewis Hamilton up in the gym, just like getting out his reps to get in shape. Like that has to take a toll. And that's not a way to live. If you're Nico Rosberg with the way he presents himself. Good point. It's not. And I, I think if Nico Rosberg listened to this podcast and his championship was in doubt because it had been fixed, I think he would be heartbroken. Um, And I truly believe that. And as I've said before, I'm not Nico's biggest fan, but I think the man gave it every single bit of his body and his mind and everything. You could, and, you could and hear it in Abu Dhabi, couldn't you, on the radio? He was a broken man. He was broken. And I think yes. Um, I think if he ever found out that there was a conspiracy, he, you know, he, I, I'm not sure he could handle that. So I'm going to give my my opinion on this. And, and, and please bear in mind that I'm a hardcore Hamilton fan here, but I'm giving this conspiracy a one out of ten. Blimey. I wasn't expecting that. Did not see that coming before we started this recording. Uh, Wow. I'm going to give it a 2 out of 10. I I, I think there's almost no credibility there at all. I'm going to piggyback off Will. I'm also going to give it a 2 out of 10. And I think the biggest advocate for it being legitimate would be Nico Rosberg. In that if he ever found out there were any illicit dealings, if he found them or went looking for them or had any inclination there was, oh, we would hear about it because that is the crowning achievement of his career, the culmination of his life in motorsport. Uh, there's, I just don't see it happening. I'll, I'll too. I'll leave it at that. And Cal, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a three. I think I said before the podcast I'm giving it a two, but no, it's a three now. The, the main reason being is that I believe if it did happen. Mercedes did it themselves and kept everyone out of the loop. It was an inner circle thing. Maybe even the mechanics themselves, everyone didn't know about it. But Rosberg did work hard. He did deserve it. There's no doubting that. You could argue that Hamilton deserved it, though, as well. They were both very good that season. And due to reliability issues, Hamilton didn't win it. That is pure fact. Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe that if the reliability issues weren't a factor, Hamilton would have beaten Rosberg. And I think that's an absolute given. And I think, uh, you know, I refer back to my previous point that 
Rosberg had reliability issues in in previous seasons. Reliability is part of F1, and it always will be. And I think if you want a sport where it's going to be 100% reliable, then you should go and play scale electrics or something like that. Um, Matt? Reliability issues are a fundamental truth of F1. In racing in general, you're going to have components fail. You're going to push a piece of equipment past the limits of what you've tested for. You're going to have shit happen. It's the ability to bounce back from factors beyond your control that A, separate Lewis Hamilton from a lot of other drivers, <laughs> but they're all conditioned to deal with that. And just, it's a luck of the draw. The cards finally fell correctly for mm-hmm. Nico Rosberg to triumph in that year. Can I just say thanks to Cal for the research on that? Because I wasn't actually that interested in, I'm never really interested in Mercedes generally because they're all a bit good, but that stimulated the old brain cells. Well done, sir. Oh, good. I'm glad it did yours because Matt and Ollie were being right. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we, we were private messaging each other. I just uh, want to point out that Ollie started off bitter. Like, to Will's point, Ollie started off extremely bitter every time that you mentioned the name Nico Rosberg and kind of rolled his eyes and made a snarky comment in the chat. And by the end of it, Callum, you have him defending Nico Rosberg. That is the sign That's quite of a, a point. Yeah, that's a point well researched. Even I'm not sure I want to keep that in the edit. Uh, I never thought I would be, but I, I, the, the the more I thought about it and the more I listened to it, yeah, it, it's not every person is untouchable. It's just that's how it is. Um, Everyone enjoys story time with Callum. <laughs> I want you to read me a story every night when I go to sleep. Yeah. Right, guys, before Please we... Please uh, do that, otherwise I'll call the police. Yeah, um, yeah. please yeah. Uh, <laughs> So we've gone through the conspiracies that you asked us to. Um, it's been a bit of a challenge. I don't think any of us are going to lie about that. It's been, it's been fun. Um, and I, I do thank you, Matt, Will, Callum. Uh, and I thank myself as well for all the hard work that we put into this. So but modest. <laughs> I, too, am extraordinarily humble. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it has been fun, and it's been amazing looking at some of these stories. So um, l- please do let us know what you think. Give us your opinions on what we've said as well. Um, Cut to the Race podcast on Facebook. That's where you need to go. We have a group there. Don't worry about anything else. Cut to the Race podcast on Facebook. Just join that group and give us your thoughts. Even if even if we ain't going to like it, just do it. I, I might delete it, but g- give us your thoughts anyway. We've got well, we, yeah. We've got to take a wide demographic of our audience, haven't we? We are the we are the podcast of the people. <laughs> we are uh, across the world, and we have lots of Hamilton haters. That so, sounds a bit uh, communistical. Maybe we're not the podcast of the people. We're just a podcast, and sometimes there are people there. Just make it American. We're the podcast by the people for the people. Oh dear God! Oh, Can dear. We end yes, we are here? come Matt, to the dark side, Will. Oh. Matt, I might make you move out shortly. And on that note, <laughs> uh, we, we're going to leave it there. But thank you so much for listening, Matt. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, as always. And once again, for anybody out there that wants to hear us deep dive into something, let us know. We can't do it if you don't tell us. Uh, always a pleasure. Exactly. And Will, who uh, I think you're rubbing your leg or something. I can hear it on the microphone there. But uh, you're right. Oh, sorry. My chair's moving around again. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was really interesting. I, uh, I actually enjoyed doing a lot of the research, even though I didn't get much sleep as a consequence. Um, do remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I will be uploading stuff there eventually when the season gets going and we have something more interesting to talk about than the fact that Williams have signed Jensen Button, which is frankly <laughs> dull. Um, so my apologies for the lack of content. But there will be stuff up there in a few months when 
we've got kicking off. So thanks very much. And last but not least, Callum. Thank you. Thank, thank you, bye. <laughs> that was concise. Yeah, it was. It was. Don't mugging about on that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you uh, next week. Goodbye.